John chapter 11 is our text, verses um, 11 through 27. Pastor James has reminded me that uh, I'm the only person that it takes so long to, to get Lazarus dead and buried. We're, we're not quite there yet. One thing we do know is that Lazarus does die, and, and he is raised again by Jesus. That's part of what we'll be studying soon. But if you've read it, you know, you know that. And then, but see, the, the, then, then he has to die again, and he awaits the resurrection of the dead. So uh, it's an interesting thing. We'll talk about that later. <clears throat> but today I want to start in verse 1, once again, just for the sake of context and for the sake of getting, you know, putting all the parts together. So in, in John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. And then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessedness of your word. And how we pray now that you would anoint and bless us with your Holy Spirit and give us wisdom and understanding, Lord, so that we certainly, Lord, may trust in you all the more, believe in you all the more for the days that are approaching, to give us the strength and the wisdom that we need to be light in a dark world and to be salt uh, to this earth. And Father, I pray that you would fill us now to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, with your wisdom, with your understanding and grace. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. In our previous study, we focused on timing and perspective. Timing and perspective. Well, first of all, the fact that the Lord is never late and we need to be tuned to his spiritual clock. And there is a spiritual clock by which God moves. And certainly it's a perfect timing. It's a timing that we need to remember, that we need to mark our clocks, you know, our, our, our own personal spiritual clocks too. But then there is the second thing, and that is the distinctions between looking at things in this life from either a human perspective or a divine perspective. Now, in other words, and, and let me frame this in, in a question, are we so caught up in looking at things merely from man's point of view, or as believers in Jesus Christ and his word, do we step out in faith and confidently look at things from God's point of view? Because one or the other is going to be beneficial for us, and I will tell you now that by looking at things from a divine perspective, that's going to be a lot more beneficial than looking at things in life from man's perspective. So with that, with that in mind, let's, let's review First of all, the importance of this illness that we read about, the illness of Lazarus. And, and uh, from the text we, that we've read so far, if we look at it from, from God's perspective, the first purpose of Lazarus' sickness and illness was to bring glory to God and to clearly proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. So when you look at, again, from things in a divine way or a divine perspective, then you realize that Lazarus was to die for the glory of God and Christ. Lazarus was to die for the glory of God. Now, this is something that we talked about uh, last time. Secondly, it was to show Jesus' great love for Mary and Martha and their brother. You know, when you look at verse 5 and you think, you know, he's... It's talking about Lazarus being sick, and, and, and then Jesus said, well, he's not sick unto death, but for the glory of God. Uh, and then it just says Jesus loved Martha and his sister Lazarus. And it seems quaint that maybe, you know, he just, John expresses some sense of love, you know, for this family, which, of course, Jesus had. But it's a very purposeful reason. And as, as we think about it, think about who loves you when you're going through your trials or when you go through loss or when you go through pain or when you go through affliction? Who loves you if Jesus doesn't? Well, we know that he loves us with an everlasting love. So this is not just there. It's there on purpose for us to see the steps leading to this grand event in this chapter. And then thirdly, Lazarus' illness was, was to show the necessity to wait upon God in great crises. We, we see a messenger sent to Jesus with this, with this note that, that says, Lazarus is sick. And yet Jesus lingers, doesn't move. Who's supposed to be waiting? Who's waiting at that time? Mary and Martha are waiting because Lazarus, by the time the messenger gets there, as we've already studied, Lazarus is already dead. Now the disciples are the ones waiting, 
waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. But what this teaches us is there is a necessity for us to wait upon God in those great times. We quote it from Isaiah. They that, wait, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It benefits us to wait upon the Lord in times of trial. And then the fourth pur- uh, purpose was to teach the need to take hold of every opportunity. Jesus finally says, let's go to Judea. The disciples say, you want to go where they, they're ready to stone you and kill you? But Jesus knew that it wasn't his time yet. It was getting close, but it wasn't his time. Jesus saw this whole issue as an opportunity to bring glory to his Father and to make it clear that Jesus himself was the resurrection and the life. So today we're going to look more closely at, at, at Jesus showing his great power over life and death. And we go back to verse 11, if you will, uh, in our reading here. And and let's be a little more focused on what we see. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. If you'd like to underline anything, underline those three words, Our friend Lazarus. That's an important little phrase that we'll talk about in a moment. Verse 12, Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. And then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, I think you, you, didn't, you didn't interpret what I said properly. Let me tell you what I meant. Lazarus is dead. And notice this. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Who's he speaking to? His disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent you may believe. Wow, this has just turned into a lesson to the disciples. And then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. By the way, is he talking about Lazarus? Or is he talking about Jesus? Keep that thought in mind. So it was very plain then what Jesus was going to do. From the text, we are told that Lazarus was asleep and Jesus was going to awaken him out of sleep. Now, I say that because it was in that mindset that the the disciples misunderstood what Jesus was saying. I mean, they even repeated what Jesus said about sleeping using the same word Jesus did. Lord, if he sleep, it's the Greek word koimao. He says, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. But there, there, there are two Greek words for sleep. And they use the one that is actually the root word for the, the term that we know today as cemetery. So if that's the root for the word cemetery, then you know that Jesus was actually talking about sleep as being something that is akin to what? Death. So unless they themselves were asleep, speaking of the disciples, or they were dead tired, <laughs> they just thought that Jesus was speaking of regular sleep. 
But the fact is, in verse 13, John makes mention of regular sleep. He says, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. The word sleep there is not the same word koimao. It is the word hupnos, H-U-P-N-O-S. And uh, that word, uh, as it is transliterated into the English, now becomes the word, uh, the, the root word for words like hypnosis or uh, hypnotist or hypnotized. And uh, really, so the word hypnos has, has the understanding of, of being in a stupor. So I don't know how to pro- project stupor. You know. <laughs> but I mean, you're alive, and you, but, you're, but you're like, <laughs> well, you look dead. <laughs> but it was just regular sleep. So Jesus gives his clear meaning there. He said, you didn't listen to what I said, so let me tell you what I meant. Lazarus is dead. D-E-D, dead. Any spelling champions here? (laughs) But take notice of something else that, that Jesus said. He said, our friend Lazarus. Our friend Lazarus. He was dead, but he's still our friend. And this is a major hint here. Don't miss it. Major hint. Lazarus is still a friend despite being dead. He's still living, albeit in another place. You think about the four days that Lazarus is in the tomb when Jesus arrives. Four days in the tomb. That was a Jewish custom. Four days in the tomb means that at that point, he's really dead. It's official. It's like the stamp of deadness. They considered, the Jews considered, that the, the, that the spirit takes three days to go get out of the body. Fourth day, it's done. So he's dead. And of course, there are other places. There is life after death. The Bible teaches that very clearly. But this is, this is what we know as believers. We know from the word of God that a sinner who dies in his sins is separated from God for eternity. This is one of the very basic theological foundations of the the scriptures that a person who is a sinner who dies in his sins is separated from God for eternity this is the reason for the need of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ of bringing the message of hope that when we die we will still live and be with him because a person who is born again of the spirit of God is saved and he does not die. They're, you know, if the body dies, that's one thing. But the person who was a believer in Jesus Christ, if he dies, he is now in the presence of the Lord. Their body is just a temporary dwelling place for our souls and spirits to dwell in. And, and, and so is our bodies. Yeah. Paul, put, Paul puts it this way, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now, we understand one thing. We know that the Lord is with us because he said, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But that is him being with us here to give us strength to live in this life until what? Till we go home and to be with him where we will, we will be able to see him with new eyes, fresh eyes, spiritual eyes that we don't have right now. Not one of us has ever seen Jesus with these eyes, these, these human eyes. So understand what he's saying. He says, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We're, we're, we're not with him for eternity yet. 
This is why he says in verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. See, we're walking by faith because what? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So that's, that's walking by faith. But, he, but here, see, we walk by faith, but not by sight. When we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus. And we're going to see him every day. And I tell you what, we should be excited about seeing the Lord. That we, I mean, that should be our goal. That should be our heart's desire right now. I want to be with the Lord. In fact, that is what Paul was, is saying. He says in verse 8, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And then he says it in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, in a, in a more clear way, if you will. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as I'm living in the flesh, in this life and in this world as a believer, I'm living for Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. But when I die, that's gain to me because I'll be with him. Then he says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I, ch- I shall choose, I, I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two. In other words, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's, it's the struggle. It's the struggle of a believer to say, I have a desire to depart, as he goes on to say, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Being with you, Paul says to the Philippian church, being with you, preaching to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you the word of God. This is needful to you. God has put me here for that reason. Then I'll be here as long as he, as he wants me here. But I want to be with Christ because that's far better. And, and, I, and I suppose I want to teach this in the best way I can. And that is to say that that is my heart's desire. I want to be with the Lord. I want to be there now. But I'm here now. Because God has placed me here with you, for you, and for your growth in Christ until he comes. So, pray for me. (laughs) But, if you will, adopt the same heart. That you have the same desire. That you want to be with Jesus. More than you want to be in this world. What is the great cry in the book of Revelation? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. This this world is getting just a mess. As long as we're in it, God will protect us. As long as we're in it, God will give us wisdom. God will give us grace. As long as we're in it, God will lead us and guide us. God will use us. But as long as we're here, we know that the Lord is with us. But where would we rather be? There's nothing in this world that I want. I mean, we have what we have, and we should be thankful. Praise the Lord for that. But you know, it's all going to wear away. It's all go- you know, things are going to die. It's, you know, springtime is coming, and some of you are already thinking about planting those tomatoes and, and all kinds of other vegetable stuff, and because you know, I don't know anything about that. But, you know, you plant all that stuff, and you plant trees, and, and you know, you do this and that, and then, and then what do you do? You see the seasons. The seasons change, and then, you know, you, you get your fruit from it, and then everything dies for a little while, then it comes again. But see, we're getting to a point where things are just going to die. except those who know and love Jesus Christ. Because even if these bodies are planted in the ground, guess where we'll be? 
will be with him. The desire has to be like Paul's. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Far better for all of us. See, the world has kind of the world has kind of caught us in this, this thing about saying, you know, there's enough of the world here that you should just want to have more of it. And and so, you know, the thing about Jesus coming, well, that's okay, that's nice. You know, it's a nice thing. But you know, what but but hey, you know, there's the Super Bowl. Lord Jesus, please wait till after the game. Really? Does that mean that much to you? My goodness. Where is our mindset? Where is our mindset? You know what? This isn't in my notes, but but I want you to turn there. Colossians. Turn to Colossians. You won't see it up there. So you got By the way, you should have a Bible, so you should turn there with me. Colossians chapter three. I'm adding. By the way, you know what that's going to mean? That's going to mean we're going to go a little long. Is that okay? Doesn't matter what you say. We're going to do it. Okay. But I thought it'd be nice to ask. Colossians chapter three verse one. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that? And look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, whoa! When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Then shall you also appear with him in glory. Wow, that's something to live for. Amen? Okay, so where's your mindset? Is your mindset in the world or is your mindset in Christ? I hope and pray your mindset is in Christ. Because the next thing he says is, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Wow. In other words, you got to die to all those things. We're not going to go through that list because then I'd be going into another Bible study and then we won't finish this one that we're doing already. So let's go back to John. But isn't that encouraging? I, I, I wanted to say that because that's encouraging. It's encouraging to me that my mindset needs to be on, on, on Christ and not on the earth and the things of this earth. And when Christ who is our life shall appear... Oh, that's something to look forward to. Okay, so anyway, getting back to John, because I've already taken a little bit more time than I wanted to, but the great statement that Jesus makes about going to awaken him out of sleep, awaken Lazarus out of sleep, is surely a reminder now to his disciples of his power over both death and life, something that they had heard and learned from Jesus earlier. John chapter 5, verses 26 to 29. Notice what it says. Now remember, the disciples were hearing this from Jesus. This was after Jesus had, had uh, healed the, uh, the lame man 
that had been lame for 38 years that was at the pool of Bethesda and, and, and Jesus healed him and, and the man rose up and took up his bed to walk and then the, you know, the Pharisees got all over him because he was working on the Sabbath and then they condemned Jesus because he had healed on the Sabbath. Okay, so you all know about that. So the conversation moved on into this where Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has given to the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man marvel not at this for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation and that voice by the way is going to be the voice of the messiah so understand that the disciples heard that so here is the lesson that they were still needing to learn And that is why the Lord said to them, and I am glad for your sakes, verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. How can he say, I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sakes? He's saying, listen, disciples, I'm here to teach you another lesson so that you may believe. I mean... We, we, we might think that we've seen it all by this time in our Christian walk. Those of you that have been Christians for 10, 12, 15, 30, 25, you know, 50 years. I've been a believer for over 40 years. I, I haven't seen it all. I haven't. In fact, I don't want to see it all. But there are too many people in the church today. You tell them about something in the scriptures. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. Really? You know everything. Why? Let me take your picture, you know. Do a selfie with me, you know. I know somebody that knows it all. I don't know it all. But one thing I do know is that we still have a lot of things to learn. We still have a lot of things to learn. And areas of faith that need to be stretched. The disciples had seen Jesus do miraculous things. And yet they were still at a place here. This is, by the way, getting near to the cross. We are so close to the cross. Over two and a half years now the disciples have been with Jesus. Probably closer to three years at this point. And and they're that much closer to the cross. They've seen hundreds of things that Jesus has done. And yet he's saying, but so that you may believe. We got to go to Lazarus. Wow. Their faith needed to be stretched. And may I say to you that, that we need to let God stretch our faith. Sometimes we want to take the easy way out. Sometimes we, take, we want to take the, you know, the easy road. Folks, that would be like taking the broad, broad, road, uh, the broad road or the broad way that leads to what? Destruction. Jesus talked about it. He says there's a narrow road that leads to life. And what we learn from the scriptures is that narrow road has a lot of, you know, it, it, there's a lot of struggles in it. It's narrow. People today who, who know that we're believers, they, they say, well, you guys are so narrow-minded. Well, praise the Lord. This world has got so many stupid things going on. You know, I don't, you, know you, you think, how do, they, how do people believe this stuff? That's the deception of the enemy from the garden. We have, you know, when God stretches us, 
let him because what is he doing? He is molding us and shaping us more and more each day into the image of Christ, which is what the word says he's going to do. So let him. Let him stretch you. Let him stretch your faith. And one of the areas that stretches our, our faith more than anything is when our loved ones die. When our loved ones die, that stretches our faith. Well, let's go on. And before we press on to that, consider one more thing. Verse 16 of uh, John 11 uh, isolates a statement by Thomas that, that some may not fully understand. The statement that says, uh, let us all also go that we may die with him. What Jesus uh, was, was saying concerning Lazarus' illness and death obviously stirred in this doubting disciple a courage and a loyalty that is not often observed in this text. Now, some would debate the, the issue whether he was being loyal and courageous or maybe he was being facetious. I think he was being loyal and courageous, honestly. You look at the text long enough and you look at the lives of the disciples who were with Jesus long enough and you realize that, uh, first of all, he wasn't talking about dying with Lazarus. He was talking about dying with Jesus because they were heading back to Judea. They were heading back to Jerusalem and, and that was where his vicious, vicious opposition was and this is why, why they were saying, you want to go back to Judea? So Thomas, and we know about Thomas later on, you know, he, he, he just didn't believe that Jesus had resurrected. He says, you know what, when I can put my hand into his scars, I'll believe. And then Jesus appears, we, we know what happened. Thomas, put your hand in my scars, my side. What did he do? He didn't do it, as far as we know. All he could do was fall on his, on his knees and say, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. So here, here's Thomas, in his deep love for his Messiah, was willing to stand and die with his fellow believers in the Lord's work. And I have to say, with a knowledge that to die for Christ is better than to live without him. To die for Jesus Christ is better than to live without him. I cannot fathom what it would mean or what, it's, what would it be like to try to live without Jesus in my life. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know what that would be. But it would seem to me to be terribly, terribly tragic. This is why knowing Jesus is, is of utmost importance. This is why not taking Jesus for granted is of utmost importance. This is why trusting in the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving him with all of your heart matters more than anything in this world. More than anything in this world. My question to you today is, do we love Jesus this way? Do we love Jesus to say, Lord, I'll go and die with you. Because it is better than living without you. I thought of the statement that Peter 
makes in his first letter to the church. Peter, who had heard these words of Jesus and Thomas because he was there. He was there. Peter would write in verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter 1, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, we'll begin here, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. That, that little phrase strikes me more than, than any, anything that deals with the love of God, my love for God, or my love for Christ. Whom have you not seen, you love. And I referred to this earlier, but who in this place has ever seen Jesus with, with your physical eyes? Not one of us. Not one of us. And yet we love him. Why are we here on a Sunday, on a super Sunday morning? Why? Well, I, got, I don't have much to do here before the game today, so well, I think I'll stop at that church and we'll just gotta see what's happening. Go eat a burrito. Drink a bottle of salsa. We're here because we love Jesus. I hope we're here because we love Jesus. I hope we're here because we, we want to express our love to him. Whom having not seen you love, and whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. What did we do earlier today? We were praising God. We didn't have him in front of us to see him, but we knew he was there. We know he's here. We know he'll be here when we need him. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the world. So we rejoice. What a great statement. You rejoice with joy unspeakable. I mean, that's an oxymoron. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And yet, we sing unto the Lord. But it leads to something else of greater importance. Think about this, receiving the end of your faith, receiving the goal of your faith. Folks, when we worship the Lord, we should always remember that the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And what we're doing right now is waiting for the fulfillment of our salvation. We have been saved by the work of Christ. We are being saved on a daily basis through the, you know, through the presence of Christ in the Holy Spirit. And we are going to be saved when we finally see him in all of his glory. That's a wonderful way to look at salvation, but that's the way the Bible sets it up for us to see from the past, the present, and the future to receive the end or the goal of your faith being the salvation of your souls. When we worship the Lord that way, oh Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to give you praise and honor and glory. And Lord, if you came right now, if you came while we're having this worship service, that'd be a perfect time for us to go home. Boop, vamonos. And we're out of here. Well, we got to get back to Jesus because time's going. Jesus and his disciples have now left Bethabara. That's where they were when they received the message on the other side of the Jordan. And they have made their one long day's journey to Bethany, where Jesus will now encounter one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha. And their conversation will stir our hearts to understand the necessity of our fellowship with Jesus leading to our faith growing 
significantly. And I brought a, a thought to mind this morning in first service that I, I didn't share last night, but I, I want to share it with you all. The necessity of fellowship with Jesus on a daily basis that leads to our faith growing every day. I, I, I'm going to say this. It's, it's, a, it's a bold statement. I'm going to say it anyway. But if you're not growing spiritually, then you're not spending time with Jesus. And you're not spending time in his word. And you're not listening to what he's saying. And even if you're going through certain motions, you're not getting it. I, 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 want, I want to be clear that we need to spend time with the Lord. He wants to spend time with us. And, and you know, it, it, you don't have to have a theological degree to do that. You just need to know Jesus. And you just need to know that he knows you and he loves you. And you need to invite him every day into your devotion, into your devotional time, into, into, your, into your time of prayer. And talk to him. And think about this conversation. Because this, listen to this conversation. Verse 17. Well, then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. That's Lazarus, of course. Dead. Four days. And now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs long, which means it was less than two miles away. Bethany actually sits about just about two miles from the golden gate of the old city of Jerusalem today. And, and many of the Jews uh, came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. This is what they did. You see, when people die in the Jewish, in the Jewish faith, they realize they're all, they're all family. They're all family. Twelve tribes are all part of the same family. They may disagree in this or that or whatever, but when a person dies, they sense it and they feel it. Can you imagine how they felt when they heard of six million of their brothers being exterminated? What that did? May I tell you what it did? It brought about the state of Israel. That's a pretty significant thing. Well, let's go on. So Martha is there with Mary. They're being comforted. You know, people just coming every day. This would happen, by the way, for about 30 days. The morning time would be about a week. You know, the, but, but they would be receiving people for, for 30 days. The custom. But then Martha, it says, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house and then said, Martha, unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, how she said that, I don't know. I'd, I'd really like to know how she said that to Jesus. In other words, it, did she say it? Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Or... Did she say, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died? I don't know. But it gives us a little indication as we read on about where she might have been when she ran to Jesus. She does say in verse 22, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall arise again, or shall rise again. And Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? Do you believe this, Martha? And she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Mashiach, the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Now, according to the text, it isn't sure whether or not Jesus entered into the city of Bethany or stayed in the outskirts just short of the city. It is possible that he did that due to a large following that he may have drawn in approaching Bethany, or he was simply avoiding those who were opposed to him. But nevertheless, messengers may have been sent ahead to let Martha and Mary know of Jesus approaching the city and approaching their home. And as soon as Martha heard of Jesus approaching, she uncharacteristically left the house and ran to meet Jesus. Now, why do I say that she did this uncharacteristically? Well, it was because Mary and Martha, as sisters of Lazarus, and now being possibly the only ones of that, of that household, were required to stay at home to receive the people coming to mourn with them. Now remember, this is still within the first week. It's still within the first seven days. So they needed to be there to receive the people who came to bring them gifts, came to bring them food, came to uh, give their condolences, came to give them comfort, came to uh, just to be with them. But she ran out of the house to meet Jesus, uncharacteristically to run. And we, talk, we, we talked about the, you know, the, the father of the prodigal son that uh, was waiting for his son. And eventually on the, on the horizon, the, the, the prodigal son was coming home. And when the father saw him, the, the scripture says that he ran to his son. But in that culture of that time, running like that would have required the, the father to have raised his, his, his long robe, you know, and run with his skinny little legs, you know, all the way up to where his son was. That's an uncharacteristic act. But he did it because of his, his love for his son and his prayer, his prayer for, to the God to bring him home. We'll do uncharacteristic things when God stirs our hearts. And she left and ran and, meet, and met Jesus. And in that little picture, Martha ran, Mary stayed still. What a contrast between these two sisters. Martha was the woman of action. She was full of energy. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that she complained to Jesus one time because Mary was sitting at his feet. And she says, tell my sister to get back in here in the kitchen and work with me because, you know, I'm doing everything by myself. That was, that was Martha. I mean, uh, you know, Mary, on the other hand, was, was more of the meditative one who didn't leave the house when the Lord arrived. She stayed behind <coughs> to receive the mourners. Which brought a thought to mind that if, if, if Martha would have had a last name, it would have probably been Stuart. But I know that she probably never went to prison. But anyway, let's, let's go on. So she always, you know, Martha to, always took the initiative. Mary was more of a thought, thoughtful person, passive, where Martha would run to Jesus and speak to him face to face. Mary would fall at Jesus' feet. We'll see that next time. Martha needed to know that Jesus was in control. Mary needed to know that Jesus cared. 
So Jesus met them, each of them, where they were. Just as he meets each and every one of us where we are. For Martha, he met her with an intellectual support. Lazarus will rise again. I know that, Jesus. I know that. He says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. For Mary, as we'll see later, he met her with emotional support. But the result for both was simple. God is in control. And God does care. God is in control. And God cares. Now concerning Martha's faith here, Martha's complaining, if you want to call it that. It's pretty much complaining. But Martha's complaining revealed a limited faith in Jesus. <clears throat> she definitely believed in Jesus. There's no doubt about that. She believed in the Lord. <clears throat> she even believed that Jesus could have healed her brother and kept him from dying. So that, that says a lot about her faith in Jesus. But built into the statement that she makes to Jesus about if, she, if he had been there, Lazarus would be alive, brings up these questions that we sometimes ourselves ask in the midst of this kind of struggle, trial, or tragedy that we might go through in the loss of a loved one. Why did Jesus not come when he was called? Why did he not heal Lazarus when she and her family loved Jesus so much and had done so much for him? Why did he let Lazarus die? Why? 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 In over 33 years of ministry, I think I've heard that question a thousand times. Why? And I have to tell you that there is never a good answer, at least from the human perspective. There's only perfect answers that come from God's perspective. But it brought to mind a question about our faith. Do we have a confident faith or do we have a complaining faith? Do we have a confident faith or do we have a complaining faith? Martha did believe in Jesus, but her faith was only to the level of a complaining faith, if you will. I mean, she did not believe to the point of resting in faith. If we're going to believe in faith, then we're going to rest in faith. If we're going to be confident in the things of, of, of the Lord and, and, and in, in, the, in the power that the Lord has in, in helping us through certain situations and certain trials, then we need to rest before we get to the rest. We can rest assured that the Lord is already involved in something going on in our lives. Unless we are seeing things only from the human perspective. She did not believe to the point of resting in faith. She didn't believe with an unlimited and resting faith simply because she had not entrusted the matter completely into the Lord's hands. It may be that she hadn't been convinced that what had happened was for the best. 
How many times do we think, as the world does sometimes, that sometimes in death, it's never to the best. Death is a hard thing. Death is a very painful thing. But is it ever to the best? And so the attitude of her heart was, Jesus, if, if you had acted differently, if you had done this or if you had done that, then this trial would not have happened. But do you notice something in verse 22? Look at verse 22, down in your Bibles. Did you notice how quickly Martha was convicted for having complained and admonished Jesus? How quick she was in, 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 in being convicted? She says, oh, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou will ask of God, God will give it, give it thee. There, there's a sense of conviction here. And I can assure you, having also served, you know, uh, 15 years as, as, a, as a police chaplain and sheriff's chaplain, I've been in the middle of, of, of grieving families that just are doing such uncharacteristic things to one another. I've used an example here this weekend of a, of a family that, that lost someone through suicide. A prominent family lost someone to suicide. And when I was meeting with the family at, at the police substation, this was a long, long time ago, but on the west side, and, and uh, I mean, the, 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 the brothers of this person that committed suicide were yelling and screaming at their father blaming him for their brother having killed himself I had to be in the middle of that and I had to bring them you know calm and you know bring everything eventually we we went to their home eventually they, they, they all each one of them came and apologized for their attitude and apologized to their father But I, I never forget the, 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 the very thing that what death does to some people, especially in the kind of death that it was, but nonetheless, I've seen it in all kinds of other ways. Just, just certain things said until you begin to realize, wow, why did I say that? And conviction comes, hopefully quickly, so that things can settle down. Then what they did was they began to grieve together which is what they should have done from the beginning. It's a hard thing to see. But Martha said, but, but, I, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And I, and I thought of that for a minute. I said, yeah, there's some conviction there, but, but, but she was still limiting Jesus to some level below his father. So, well, you go and ask him. It's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm Jesus. I mean, you know, you've been trusting me all along and now you're telling me to go to the Father. So she still wasn't really grasping that Jesus himself was indeed the resurrection and the life. You know, we could read the scriptures a thousand times, but we, do we simply believe Jesus and take him at his word? Can we simply believe Jesus and take him at his word? I'd say the, the best answer is, Yes, we can. Why? Because Jesus is faithful. Our God is faithful. His word is faithful. Those disciples, this was, by the way, we already said this was going to be a lesson for them, but here they are almost three years in, in, in uh, 
uh, in fellowship with Jesus and his ministry, and they've seen everything happen. But hey, Matthew chapter 8, this is early on, of course, but in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had already done some stuff, you know, that were miraculous, but yet in Matthew chapter 8, you know, Jesus getting on a boat, it says when he was entered into a ship, uh, verse 23, his disciples followed him, and behold, there, there, there arose a great tempest in the sea, and so much that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep, and his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And yet they already seen him do great and wonderful things. And then there is that one incident with Peter, Matthew chapter 14. Peter actually you know, is in the boat. There's a you know, boat's going this way and that way. Jesus walking in the water toward them. And Peter sees Jesus and says, Lord, call me out. I'll go to you. And he said, okay, come on. So Peter goes out under the water, and as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he kept walking under the water. He's walking right straight to Jesus. As soon as he looked at the, at, at the sea, and he looked at the storm, and looked at the waves, and whoa, you know, he started sinking. And that's where we pick up verse 31. It says, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore dost thou doubt? Why did you doubt? I mean, he started well, didn't he? He got out of the boat. But he began to sink. These are the accounts that are supposed to stir our hearts to say, you know, in the next great lesson, I've got to not doubt, no matter what I see. No matter what I see, I... I'm not going to doubt. Verses 23 and 24 of our text now does assure us that Martha had a fundamental faith in that she believed in the resurrection, something that Jesus had taught and drilled into his followers, but that faith was undergoing a, a trial leading to disappointment. Things had changed in her life, in the life of her family. Her household was now radically different. There was no Lazarus any longer to be the head of the home. Now it was different. He's gone. All of us experience that void when somebody in our family dies and when they're gone. We, we, we sense this tremendous void. Things are going to change. And we are people that don't like a lot of change. Especially when it comes to things pertaining to family. When we were kids, we used to think, you know, our family, our family and folks will live forever. But no one lives forever in these bodies. We all can live forever in Christ. But you see, that's what, that's what death does to families. And what is needed is the knowledge that Jesus, the very one who stands before us, is the resurrection and the life. That is what we need to know. He is the resurrection and the life. Here's a critical fact. Jesus didn't say that he gives the resurrection and life to man, but that he is the resurrection and life. Well, he, of course, does give life and resurrection to believers, but the point is that he is the very being, he is the very essence, the very power, and the very energy of life. And so he can give and sustain life as he wills. 
And he can resurrect and restore life as he wills. And that is a phenomenal claim. That means that man, in in fact, all of life, exists only by the will and power of Jesus, who is the source of all life. There is nothing existing apart from his will. That's a major thought to to have to ponder. But the reality is there is nothing existing apart from his will. Therefore, if a dead person wishes to live, and I speak spiritually, of course, but if a dead person wishes to live, only Jesus can give him life. You you think of the the, uh, statement of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, where he talks about the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Though we were alive physically, we were dead spiritually. And eventually, he says that we were, you know, we were led and directed by the prince of the power of the air. And we were now children... uh, of disobedience or the sons of disobedience but then in verse 4 of of Ephesians 2 Paul says but God who is rich in mercy and goes on to say in effect that even when we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins he made us alive together with Christ for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast he gave us life And the person who wants to live needs to come to Jesus. We've used this verse the last three, to- uh, three studies. John 1, 4, in him was life. In the Logos was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 5, 26, which we had read earlier, you don't have to turn there. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. We studied not too long ago, John 10, verse 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Spiritual life. Zoe life. And then John, the apostle, writes in his first letter to the church in 1 John 5, 12, he says, He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And that's a pretty simple statement, isn't it? If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. How do you interpret that but as clearly, as plainly as he writes it? Do you have the life that Jesus gives? The question that Jesus posed to Martha was this. Believest thou this? Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? She gives a a testimony in verse 27. She says, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She met Jesus face to face because that was her nature. And Jesus poses the question, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe it, Martha? Do you believe it, church? 
Remember, Martha was a believer. Where is our faith? I can tell you this. If you have a confident faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, that is a faith that leads to to life. A complaining faith, though, can be likened to the kind of faith that the children of Israel had in the wilderness for 40 years when, when the Lord sent Moses to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. The first thing they did when they got out into the wilderness was they complained and they murmured and they complained and they murmured and they complained. You brought us out here to die. And in the book of Hebrews, we are told that that was just simple unbelief. So there's only really one kind of faith. It is a faith that is confident in the word of God, a faith that is confident in the word of life, who is Jesus, the Logos, and a faith that is confident in the God of the word, because he and he alone is faithful. Paul says in 2 Timothy that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So be encouraged to be faithful in Christ. Be encouraged to trust him in the times of your struggles and in your trials. Be encouraged to be lifted by his presence, to be held in his arms, for him to say, I'm your comfort. You know, his spirit was not given to us haphazardly. In fact, as we will learn in a few chapters later here in John, he's actually called the comforter for a very good reason. We need his comfort. We need his comfort. Amen? We're going to receive bread and and, and the cup of uh, juice here in just a moment. But let this be the time. Let this be the time that you consider where you stand with Jesus Christ today. Having the heart of, of the disciple like Thomas who who says, let's go with him and we'll die with him. Who would later on actually have his own doubts as to the resurrection. Or Martha, who was experiencing that that great shaking because of her loss and wondering where Jesus was. Yet he says, I'm here. I'm the resurrection and the life. Boy, that sets up some good stuff yet to come. Amen? I mean, I can't wait. I could do do it now if you'd like. No. You can read it. You probably already have. The question is, do you believe? So let's let the word of God be the mirror to our hearts this morning as we take the bread and the cup and let's partake of it together.